Good morning. My name is Pastor Ardalis Green, and um, if you've been away, we welcome you back. We're glad you're here. Um, I believe everybody has a story. Sometimes our stories are painful. We believe things about ourselves, about God that aren't true. So we cry out to God, God, reveal yourself to us. Let me know you as you really, really are. And as we read the Bible, we begin to see the true character of God, that our God is a redeemer. The big story of the Old Testament is of God's people being in bondage, slavery, down in Egypt. And they cried out to God, and God heard their cries, and God saw their misery, their oppression, and God delivered his people with an outstretched arm out of bondage, brought them into the promised land. God redeemed his people from slavery and bondage and oppression. And that story was told from generation to generation. There was the Passover feast, the Seder meal. There was the promise of Messiah to come, the lambs being sacrificed. But then on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the prophets. He redeemed us, not out of silver or gold. It's not something we bought. It's something that's purchased for us by God with the precious blood of the Lamb. He redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to us from our fathers. So this morning's topic is found in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through um, the end of the chapter. The message is about redemption. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about some of the surprising commands that God gives to his people in the book of Titus. One of those commands is given to slaves. He tells the slaves to always try to please your boss, always work hard, don't steal from him, don't pilfer, don't talk behind his back. Why? That you may be fully trusted and you might make the teachings of our God even more attractive. I addressed last week the top the secular theories of critical race theory and the 1619 Project that tried to explain why there is racism in America today. There's an effort on the part of some to rewrite history in America. It's called revisionism. You cannot rewrite history. This is very wrong. You can't make history say whatever you want to say. They argue that even though the laws have changed in America, there still is racism. The implication is there should be compensation given to the descendants of slaves. Certain universities like Georgetown, Harvard, Yale, have put millions of dollars into compensation funds. Instead of pressing ourselves into critical race theory and believing this Project 1619, we need to press ourselves into the gospel because the gospel is that which frees people. It unites people. These theories are dividing our land. Jesus said, so here's the gospel. Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the gospel, there is exceedingly good news. In the gospel, we receive our sight. We begin to see what's wrong in our own lives in society. The black man, if he is a believer is my brother. He's, if he's not, he's made in the image of God. I value and respect his humanity. He's someone to love. 
In the gospel, the oppressed are released. God is just and not on the side of the oppressor. God is on the side of the oppressed. So slaves get released from oppression. In the gospel, we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's speaking of the year of Jubilee, when debts were released. If you were owned or owed, you were released in the seventh year. If you were a slave, you were set free. Families were reunited. In the gospel, it has the power to overcome the racial tension we see now in America. The gospel teaches us that if we are wrong, we come to the cross and we ask God's forgiveness. The gospel teaches us that if we've been done wrong, we come to the cross and ask God for the grace to forgive. The gospel destroys division. It breaks down the barrier, enables us to sit at the table as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the gospel is not backward-looking, trying to rehearse and rehash the past injustices. It looks to the cross and the sufficient payment that Jesus Christ made. It's a word of clarification. This morning, we wanted to um, give you another surprising command given to Christians living in society. We'll get there in a few moments, but it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, if you're turning there to Titus, remind the people to be subject to the rulers. Now, you could take that first word, remind, to be bring to believers' minds. Keep on reminding them of this truth. What's the truth? We don't get to pick and choose what laws we will obey. Without law, we would have anarchy and chaos. We do get to vote on leaders who will represent us. If we're so inclined, we can run for office. We can protest peaceably. But when Paul wrote this to Titus in the first century, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero hated Christians. He blamed the Christians on the burning of Rome. He decreed that Christianity would be illegal. He put Christians into prison. He martyred the apostle Paul. So the Roman Empire clearly was against Christianity. And we see increasing disdain and hostility against Christians. Yet the powerful witness of a Christian is one who keeps the law, giving to Caesar what is Caesar. Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes? And aren't you interested in the answer? Should we pay our taxes? And Jesus said, hand me a coin. Whose inscription is on the coin? And it was Caesar. And Jesus said, then we'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So the powerful witness of a Christian is keeping the law, complying with the permit process, respecting police officers and what they do, believing that no one in America is above the law. Now, the only exception to the rule is when a Christian can, in good conscience, keep the law. There's a higher law in play, which we'll talk about. So there's many, many views of government. I'm sure you have your own opinions. Some believe that government is corrupt and evil and worldly. Some believe that all politicians have been bought off. To get elected, a politician at a national level must raise millions of dollars. To get that money, they make promises to their donors. 
Therefore, in light of that, Christians should steer clear of politics. A Christian has no business running for office. A Christian shouldn't vote. A Christian shouldn't serve in the military. And a Christian should have nothing to do with government. I personally do not hold that view. I believe that Christians should vote both in the primary and in the main election. They should be well-informed and educated. I believe Christians can serve in the military. I have a son who's in the army, though some will choose not to for conscience sake. I believe that Christians should care about local, state, and national issues. I don't believe we should obsess on politics, but we should pray for kings and presidents, legislators, judges, that God would give them wisdom and that we could live peaceful and quiet lives. I believe that Christians have a moral influence on society. If a Christian is called to politics, he or she should step into that arena by faith. I spoke of William Wilberforce last week. He was called to serve as a member of parliament. At that time, slave trading was legal in England. But he had a good friend whose name was John Newton. And John Newton was a slave trader. He wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And he was converted. And when he came back to England, he wrote a book about the evils of slave trade. And so what happened was Christians like John Newton, like William Wilberforce, exerted a moral influence on society. And it would come to America and we would outlaw slavery. So let's go now to Titus chapter 2 with that introduction and look at what it says. We're going to review some verses because this is a rich passage of Scripture. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So let's review. What did God do in the past? In verse 11, it says, for the grace of God. Now, there's a common grace that's available to all people. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God bestowed on all mankind, regardless of whether they're saved or not. When God makes the sun to shine, he makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. When God makes the rain to fall, it falls on sinners and saved alike. But there's common grace given to us. On the hottest of our days, the common grace of God is to give us a shady tree to be under. The grace of God is to give us a breeze to cool the air. The grace of God is air conditioning, pumping in our face. You see, the Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all he has made. He causes his sun to rise on the just and unjust. The second part of common grace is in the life of an individual or society. God gives us government. He gives us police to protect us. He gives us firemen to put out fires. He gives us doctors to treat us when we're sick. These are 
provisions of God's common grace. But there's something beyond the common grace of God. It is saving grace. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God is God's gracious favor extended to undeserving sinners. We aren't saved by being religious. We aren't saved by religious activities. I was listening yesterday to a young man who himself was a Mormon missionary. And he, as he went out on a mission trip, wearing his white shirt and his name tag, pedaling his bicycle, he happened to come to Orlando, Florida, and he encountered a Baptist minister who challenged him to read the Bible as if he were a child. All his life, he was trying to earn his salvation, as if by doing something, he could get his own salvation. But it was there that he encountered that salvation is a free gift that comes from the hand of God. Some believe there's boxes we need to click off to get saved or keep saved. Some believe that getting baptized will save you. Some believe that if they do something wrong, they can pay God off by giving money. Some believe by keeping the Ten Commandments, they can get saved. Some believe that if they don't speak in tongues, they aren't saved. Listen, it's not about you. It's not about what you have done. It's about what has been done. It's not about your works. It's about his finished work. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation. You don't deserve salvation. It is God's generous favor given to undeserving sinners, and it's received by trusting him alone. The law had set the standard. The law is holy, righteous, and good, but no one beside Jesus ever kept the law. We have all broken God's commandments, and our condition is that we are sinners, and our position is that we are people in debt. But the really good news is the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared is the word shining. It's as if in the midst of all the darkness of the world, the sun has come up bringing light. There is salvation that has appeared in his incarnation. And this grace has appeared to all men, to Jews and to Gentiles, to the poor and to the affluent, to men and to women, to the undocumented and citizens, to the powerful and the powerless, to the Republicans and the Democrats. The grace of God has appeared, extended, offered to all men. This week, we remembered my dear friend, Morris Lewis. He was a mischievous boy growing up. He got himself into all kinds of trouble. He dropped out of high school, he went into the army, and he was trained as a soldier and became a Green Beret serving in Vietnam, first of all behind the scenes, and then as a pilot of a fixed-wing aircraft. When he returned from Vietnam, he was driving in his car, and it came to his mind how many close calls he had had with death. And he remembered his mother's prayers, and he had heard the gospel. And he said he had his Damascus Road experience, where the gospel of Jesus Christ now was believed in his heart. He was saved, and he was radically changed. 
And he came home from that experience and he said, kids, you're going late to school today because dad got saved. And when dad got saved, everything changed. You see, we've all done stuff we regret. We've all said yes when we should have said no. We've all gone down the wrong path. But there's saving grace sufficient for you. You might think your sin is greater than God's grace. But the truth is, his grace is far greater. When you believe that Jesus took your place on the cross, and when you trust in him alone, the Spirit of God applies the grace of God to you. Because Jesus came to restore broken humanity. He came to make us whole again and pay the price we couldn't say, couldn't pay. Verse number 12. We um, learn here what God is doing now, which is sanctifying believers. The grace of God, first of all, appeared to us as saving grace. And some of you here in this room need to take your first step and receive the grace of God that washes away our sin. And to get saved, we will be here to get you started. But grace, second of all, is sanctifying grace. All of you who are believers need God's sanctifying grace. The very same grace that saves us also changes us. You cannot receive the grace of God without being changed. So what happens when you get saved is you receive a new nature and God's spirit. And you won't say what you used to say. You won't do what you used to do. The reason is you aren't the same person you used to be. The penalty of sin was paid for in salvation. But the power of sin is broken in sanctification. Sanctifying grace certainly began in my friend Morris. He said no to his worldly lifestyle. He said no to his ungodly desires. He became the very best version of himself because God was at work in him and the Holy Spirit was living in him and he was alive to the word of God. He began to practice self-control and lived an upright, godly life. And many of his habits began to change. A friend of mine got saved. His name was Marcus. And when he, sa- when he got saved, it was a radical change. Marcus didn't sound like the old Marcus. Marcus didn't do what the old Marcus did. So I said to him, something happened to you, Marcus. Tell me what it is. He said, I got saved. But if you'll come to church with me, I can't explain it all, but if you come to church with me, you'll figure it out for yourself. Marcus was the first person I ever saw who had a dramatic change in the person of Jesus Christ. He was very influential in my own salvation. Could it be that God's sanctifying influence in you will produce profound changes that will be noticed by others and they'll ask you, hey, what has happened to you? Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, what's the future to look like? Jesus Christ will return again. He appeared the first time bringing salvation, but he will, bring a, he will come a second time on Air Horse One, conquering over his enemies. For every one verse about his first coming, there are eight verses about his second coming. Spurgeon said, the sound of his appearing should be like music to our ears. 
I believe that the second coming is always a barometer of our spiritual health. If it's something you look forward to, I just can't wait until Jesus comes back again. Lord Jesus, come quickly. If that's your heart's desire to see Jesus face to face, you're probably pretty spiritually healthy. But if it's something you dread and just are afraid of, there's a work that God wants to do in you. He wants to breathe into your soul the blessed hope. He wants you to look forward to the second appearing. You see, the second appearing happens after the great tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus said it this way, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory. Now, one person who often teaches this, his name is Greg Glory, and the way he teaches this is, he will come on the clouds for great glory. And I want to say every time he says that, he will come on the clouds with great glory to claim great glory and whoever else is waiting for him. Verse 14, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawless deeds, from all wickedness. Of all the beautiful names of Jesus, one of the most beautiful ones of all is Jesus, my Redeemer. When you speak of redemption, you speak of what Jesus did when he paid for our sins with his own blood. Herbert Lockyer says, Redemption is the chief among the doctrines of grace, for from it all the rivers of grace flow. What is redemption? To redeem is to set someone free, to release a slave by the payment of a price. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares sinners righteous by faith. The scene is set in the courtroom. Reconciliation brings us into the living room where people sit down at the table now, used to be enemies, but are friends. But redemption takes us to the slave market where men and women were slaves and set free by the power of Jesus Christ. Redemption is a beautiful Bible word that has been hijacked in our culture, especially in sports. Let's say a football team has lost badly. Let's say they're the Reds, the used to be Redskins, the Washington Commanders have lost badly. But they've got another chance to play against a team. And in the rematch or in the playoffs, the announcer will say, this team today or this quarterback is looking for redemption. They imply that if he wins the game, that he has redeemed himself. We are not saved by winning the game. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what redemption truly means. In ancient Rome, in places like Crete, men and women and children were routinely bought and sold. When the Romans conquered over a territory, the vanquished people became their slaves. And when a person went into debt, the creditors could put that person into slaves' prison to repay their debt. Slaves in the 1st and 18th century were owned, traded, purchased, and put to work. You might be born into slavery. You might go into debt and fall into slavery. You might be captured by the army and become a spoil of war. But in the 1st century, there were two ways to get freed from slavery. The number one way was a slave might earn enough money, work enough years 
to pay a price and purchase his own freedom. If you saw the movie Gladiator, the key character was trying to earn his freedom by winning battles that would be called redemption. But the number two way, the more frequent path when you were in slavery was you couldn't buy your way out and someone took pity on you and they paid your redemption price. To redeem means to pay the redemption price, to take a person out of the slave market to set them free. In redemption, there always is a divine exchange. One man pays the price and the other man goes free. And there's three Greek words used to describe redemption. The first of them is agorazo. It is used of going to the market and buying something. If you go to the grocery store and you put your items on the checkout and you pay for them, you have agorazoed your groceries. If you go online and you purchase something there and you make a credit card payment, you have agorazoed that. You have paid for it. You have purchased it. The second word in Greek is the word ex-agorazo. When you say the word ex, it means out of. So you go into the slave market, you see someone's purchase price, you are willing to pay the purchase price, and now they are taken out of the slave market and made free. The third word is the word lutron, meaning having been purchased and removed from the slavery to be set free. So let's come to the heart of it now in verse 14 and see what are the effects of redemption. We are ransomed. We were held hostage, and now Christ has paid our ransom, and we are free. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem literally means to release upon the receipt of a ransom. Think about someone who has been kidnapped, and there is a ransom price on their head, and the ransom price is paid. They are no longer held in bondage. They are free. They can see their families. They can start their lives over. I saw a young woman once with a tattoo that said redeemed. And I said, can you tell me what this means to you? Can you tell me why you got the tattoo? She said, I was trapped in a bad relationship. I became pregnant. And I struggled with my decision as to what I would do. I prayed about it. I sought after counsel. I chose to put the child up for adoption. A young couple that couldn't have a child decided to pay all of my expenses and take the child into their home to raise the child. And she said, I believe that myself and the child have been redeemed. And so she put on her wrist, redeemed. A young woman was driving her car on the California coast. She was speeding and pulled over by a, a state trooper. She was taken to the um, traffic court, and the judge said to her, how do you plead? She said, I plead guilty. I was speeding. He said that I impose the maximum penalty upon you, and so at that time it was $100. And then the judge walked from his bench and took off his robe, and he paid the $100. He redeemed her because he was her father. 
There's a heavy price that was upon your head. And Jesus paid that price. And he has redeemed you. So that you're not the slave to other people's opinion. You're not the slave to some kind of addiction. You have been set free. Secondly, we are cleansed. Not only did Christ give himself to redeem us. He offered himself to purify his people unto himself. The priest entering the most holy place was required to bathe, to wash his whole body and then his hands and feet before entering. He took with him a basin of blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat to atone for people's sin. But now the perfect sacrifice has been made. Christ's blood cleanses his people. When your car is dirty, you've got a number of options. One option is it can stay dirty for a while. Another option is you can wash it yourself. You can get out your little dirt devil and vacuum the inside of the car. You can get out your bucket and wash the outside. You can take it to a car wash where they'll wash it for you and maybe clean the inside. Or you can have it detailed. Debbie's been talking these days about getting her car detailed. A college student came home from school with his duffel bag. And inside his duffel bag was all kinds of dirty clothes. And he took that duffel bag and he just threw it in the washing machine. And his mom, seeing this happen, said, Son, you know, the washing machine will clean the, the clothes inside the duffel bag, but they'll get a lot cleaner if you take them out one by one. Do you know, Christ cleanses us. He washes us clean. But we walk through this world and our feet get dirty. It requires a foot washing. There's times when we need to be corrected. There's times we need to be cleansed. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. And what costs, number three, Jesus such a great sacrifice that we are treasured. Do you have any idea how treasured you are? That you are God's treasured possession. If I walk through your house and I saw what really mattered to you, the pictures you put on your wall, they most likely were somebody that you sacrificed for or that you treasured very deeply. Jesus, our Redeemer, made the ultimate sacrifice. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we have infinite value to him. If he had a cell phone, your picture would pop up. If he had a refrigerator, he would have a magnet with your picture on it because he laid down his life for you. And we have been saved then by God's good work to be ready for good works. We are justified by faith alone, but the grace that justifies is never alone. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved to do good works. So what are some of the good works that God's asking Christians to do? Look with me now at Titus chapter 3. It says, Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show humility to all men. We're told to remind you of these things. Government sometimes makes laws that are unfair, that are unjust. 
We're never told in Scripture to sin to obey the government, to violate conscience to obey the government. But if we are obeying the government, we are doing the right thing. Remind the Cretans, remind the people about submission. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities. You see, they had a long history of being rebellious, and they rebelled against their leaders. Cretans were nat naturally, notoriously defiant. But those who were redeemed should obey properly constituted civil authority. God does not want anarchy or chaos in society. God is against the spirit of lawlessness. So he says, remind them, remind them to be subject to the authorities. If you find it hard to submit to authority, it may be that you have been wronged by authority and you don't trust authority. But it could also be possible that you find it hard to submit to authority because you've never submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, when he is the Lord of your life, you give him access to all the rooms of the house. We like to sit in judgment of government. We like to complain about government. We like to find fault with government. So my job is to remind you to subject yourself to government. To the degree you can, you bring yourself into submission. Submission is an attitude. Obedience is an action. Remind the Cretans, remind you to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. Two guys were in a factory, a young man and an older man. Their shift got over at 3 o'clock. When the whistle blew, the old man, you know, got out of there at 3. The younger man would take 15 minutes or so to gather up his things. So the younger man said to the older man, how is it that you leave at 3 and I leave at 3.15? And the older man said, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And the word here to Christians is to stay ready for every good work. You will find opportunities to do good to your brother, to bear your brother's burden, to volunteer yourself perhaps as a coach in the neighborhood, to be involved in the school of your kids, to be willing to do what is good, to be prepared, to be prepared for what is good. Verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, and to show true humility. To slander someone has three definitions. The speech is blatantly false. The speech was made to a third party. And the speech has caused financial damage or loss of business. Just think if we applied this principle to social media platforms. How people battle it out online and say really awful things to one another. What if we slandered no one, spoke evil of no person. Billy Graham, while he lived in his living room or his dining room, had a sign that said, he who speaks evil of his brother is not welcome in my house. Imagine, brothers and sisters, if we stop slandering one another. And then it says, to be peaceable, not looking for a fight, not looking for a quarrel, not a contentious person looking to argue, quarrel, dispute. The word is 
amachos. We get the word macho from this, trying to prove something, not stirring up trouble. And then the word gentle. Gentle is not weak. Meekness is not weakness. Gentle means being strong but under God's control. Gentle was a word used of a horse that was broken. The horse still had all of its strength. It just wasn't wild. It was under the master's control. So we say the horse has been gentled. Finally, true humility. This is an accurate view of yourself. You don't overestimate your ability, that's pride, and you don't understate your gifts and ability, that's false pride. You see, when a person is humble, they don't think of themselves less. They just think, they don't think of themselves as being lesser. They just think of themselves less. So, let me give you a case study and see how you do. Let's say you're a building contractor and you're giving the plans of a site to build. So you take your plans to the building permit office. The permit office has a long line and other contractors are in front of you. So you wait and you wait and you wait. And they get back to you sometime later with some revisions and questions. They refer you from the planning office to the zoning office. And the people in the planning office don't know the people in the zoning office. And now, you're waiting for both a ruling from the building permit as well as a zoning ruling. What is your response? What would you do if you were that contractor who had submitted his plans, but now he has to wait and wait through the process of getting a permit, the process of going through zoning? We ourselves as a church have been waiting several weeks and months to get through the planning process, to get through the zoning process, the, the permit process. We have some unfinished space. So to the degree we can, we want to be subject to the ruling authorities. We want to be obedient to God. We want to be gentle and not quarrelsome, not slanderous, showing humility to all men. There's a story in the Bible I'll close with. It has to do with Boaz and Ruth. You know, Boaz knew that Ruth and Naomi and Naomi's property needed to be redeemed. They had something in their day called a kinsman redeemer. He had to be a blood relative. He couldn't have debt. He had to be willing. So Boaz went to the elders of the city, the city gate, and he said, Naomi's property is up for sale. He said to the closest relative, are you interested? He said, yes, I'm very interested. I will redeem the land. Boaz said, if you redeem the land, you have to take Ruth as your wife and raise up to her dead husband a son. The close relative said, I changed my mind. <laughs> I think I'll pass. She's all yours. So Boaz married Ruth, and they had a son named Obed, and Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son, you may recognize his name, David. And 1,000 years, David had a greater son. His name was Jesus Christ. You see, God redeemed Ruth in order to bring forth in her line the Redeemer. And you ask the question, 
Was our Redeemer acceptable? Yes, because he was acceptable, acceptable to God and man. Was he able? Yes, because he was without sin. Was he willing? Yes, you look at the cross and you'll find your answer. Redemption is available to all people, but by faith we receive it, that what he did on the cross was sufficient to cover my sin, to set me free, to cover my shame, that sin would have no hold on me. Would you pray with me? This morning, Lord, we've tried to unpack a very weighty passage in Titus talking about redemption, talking about the enormous price you paid Jesus on the cross to cover our sin, to atone for us. Some in this room, perhaps, are still trying to work their way to heaven, to be good enough, to be religious enough. Maybe we're relying upon a decision we made somewhere in the past. Maybe we're relying upon our own righteousness. But God, you want it really clear to us, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves saved. We can only extend our empty hand and receive the gift that you would put into our hand. So on this day, Lord, we confess that we are sinful and we confess that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. His purchase price was sufficient to cover our sin. That we find in Him our forgiveness and our cleansing and our healing and we become His treasured possession. Lord, help us to be clear about the gospel and to know the offer that's being made this morning and every morning that we can come and receive. We're so thankful, Lord, for what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to share this good news with others that there is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus, and the redemption price has been paid. One last thing, Lord. If it's true of us and our own hearts that we have set in judgment of our government, that we have criticized heavily, that we have found fault, Lord, may that turn into a prayer for those in elected office, that, God, you might give them wisdom, that you might steer America back to yourself, Lord, that the time-honored principles our founding fathers used to establish this country can be reinstituted in our land, and we can see a tremendous change. We're so thankful, Lord, for the changes that are happening in many states as they seek to address the issue of abortion. And we pray, Lord, for a great work of your spirit in our land. Help us be obedient to the truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want your hearts to be happy that you've been redeemed. Now let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There's so many songs, like we just sang about redemption. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, our Redeemer, our King, to whom the lips of children sing loud hosannas. How about this one by William Cowper? He said, Ere by faith I saw the stains thy flowing wounds supply, 
Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Fanny Crosby, she wrote, perfect redemption, the purchase of God, to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, pardon, receives. And finally, redeemed, 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 redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child, wherever I am. Next week, we should close out Titus and our series in the pastoral epistles. So why don't you be reading through chapter 3 as we talk about sort of these reminders given to Christians of how to live the Christian life. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word to change our lives, to meet us where we are, to show us what needs to change, to bring ourselves into alignment with your will, with your spirit. So Lord, help us to walk in your ways, be an example to those around us, begin to live out these truths that Paul talks about here, of the redeemed people, of how we are to live our lives. If we ever forget and think that we're worthless and we've not done enough, help us to remember, Lord, that your cross was sufficient and that now we are your treasured possession. You, God, hold us dear. We are precious to you because of the cost of Calvary and what it costs to redeem us. Make our hearts happy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.